The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans and ahead on the exchange. About an hour to go until the Fed's latest decision. This time, only a quarter point hike is expected, but it will still have big implications for your money. Markets are already ginning for a pause or even a pivot in the back half of the year. But the Fed has stayed hawkish. And the jolts report this morning was stunningly strong, meaning this divide between markets and the Fed could get even wider. In the meantime, all of these hikes have pushed credit card rates to record highs. One industry watcher expects them to top 20 percent after today. Now the White House is trying to cut consumers a break. Will it work? We'll have the latest. Plus, the housing slowdown continues. Mortgage demand plunging, but those homebuilder stocks are actually doing quite well. What will happen after today's expected rate hike? And that's not all. We've also got big earnings. Meta reporting after the bell. Is it facing the same ad challenges as Snap, which is off the lows but still down almost 14% today? We'll dig into all of that. But we begin with today's market action. Dom Chu with a look at the sell-off, Dom. All right, so it is a sell-off kind of, right? Because on a Fed day, typically, Kelly, what we've noticed is that there's more of this kind of wait-and-see mentality, almost like a holding pattern for stocks. But right now, the real underperformer is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The blue chip index is down about 365 points. We were down roughly 380-something at the lows of the session. So we are down over a percent now, led lower, by the way, in the Dow by Amgen and Traveler shares. We're watching that. The S&P 500 is still above 4,000, 4,052, but it's down 23 points right now, or about one-half of one percent. At the highs of the session, we were flat, from yesterday at the lows down 26 points. That is your trading range so far today. So again, tilting towards the lower end of things. And the NASDAQ composite is the outperformer, if you will, that tech heavier trade, 11,549 for the composite index down 35 points or about one third of 1%. It is a Fed day. So let's focus in on what's happening with rates across the yield curve. Rates are lower going into this Fed print right now. The two-year note yield benchmark just a hair below 4.2%. The benchmark 10-year note yield 3.46. So again, below that 3.5% level. The 30-year long bond 3.58% there. And as we often do times on Fed days, let's take a look at some of the bank stocks because those banks are heavily focused on what happens with Fed and the interest rates and that sort of thing. It's a mixed picture, but J.P. Morgan Chase down fractionally. Citigroup also down 1%. Goldman Sachs down about three-quarters of 1%. Meanwhile, B of A and Morgan Stanley just fractionally to the green side of things. We'll keep an eye on those banks. And rates, Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dan, thank you very much. Let's get right to the big story of the day now. What are investors watching for in the Fed statement, in the press conference? What's the language? What's the code? Steve Leisman is at the Federal Reserve with what to expect. Steve? Hey, Kelly, yeah, the Fed expected to hike that quarter point you talked about, and Fed Chair Jay Powell also expected to hold the line on suggesting of any easing to come. Uh, He's going to hold the line on plans to hike and stay above 5% for a time, despite market pricing for rate cuts later this year. 66 points, that's what separates the market's year-end view and the Fed's, with future pricing and one more quarter point hike after today, and then cuts beginning in the late fall. 
That's the market, not the Fed. One question is whether Fed Chair Jay Powell feels the need to push back against that outlook or if he's content to let that play out over time and let the market and the Fed come together. Thomas Simons at Jeffries writing, Fed officials do not want the market to think that the downshift to a 25 base point meeting pace signifies the end of the tightening cycle. A series of new voters comes in. We have Kansas City, Cleveland, St. Louis, and Boston. They're on the way out as voters in the normal rotation that happens here. Uh, it's a loss of a contingent of Midwestern Hawks there. Chicago, Philly, Dallas, and Minneapolis. They're in a potentially, potentially more dovish block. One thing to listen for, does Powell quote the three- or six-month annualized inflation rate, which Fed, Chair, Fed Vice Chair Lil Brainer did in a speech earlier this month? It's now running at 2.1% on a three-month basis, real close to the, uh, the Fed's uh, a 2% target and core is at 3%. The Fed has been achieving its goal of reducing inflation with a lower funds rate than it itself forecasts. So one of the questions is, why doesn't Powell just declare victory and go home? Or, as he's more likely to do, continue to defend the 5% line because of the tight job market. Kelly? Steve, quick question for you before I, I bounce this around with everybody else. What did you make of the job openings report this morning? It was a jaw dropper. Yeah, um, the quit rate won't quit, and uh, job, the jolts is uh, the job openings keep uh, keep being uh, wide open. It's 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 quite surprising. Now, of course, you did have that lower than expected ADP, so uh, there is that one cross current there. But in general, it looks like the job market remains strong. The question is is not is the job market strong. The question is how much it actually adds to inflation. This notion of the Phillips curve or the trade off between unemployment and inflation, it's not working very well. We've had a high GDP and a low unemployment rate and inflation's been coming down in all of that, Kelly. So it's really the, the, the mechanism that Powell sees as the one driving inflation that's in question. And who raised a question about it? Well, Vice Chair Lil Brainerd earlier this month did. She said maybe that doesn't mean that you're going to have to have wages uh, or ju ju the job market soften in order to bring inflation down. Yeah, and I know you have to go, Steve, but real quickly, we're not going to get any dots or projections this month, are we? No, it's not till March, and that's been a convenient uh, uh, excuse for Fed officials not to answer my question about whether or not they're th rethinking the 5% threshold. They say, talk to me in March. Ah, very, fair enough. <laughs> uh, Steve, for now, thank you. We appreciate it. Sure. Steve Leisman, another quarter point hike may be priced in, but it's what the Fed signals or does not about future hikes that's giving the market anxiety, especially with this data sending mixed messages today in particular. Let's talk about it. Stephen Whiting is here. He's chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth Management Investments. Welcome. Kathy Busjancic is also with us. She's chief economist at Nationwide Mutual and Sabaja Rajapa is head of U.S. Rate Strategy strategy at Society General. Great to have you guys all on board. Steve, I just want to start with you reacting to what Mr. Leesman just yes. said. Jump in here a little bit on, on this idea of what's going on with the jobs data being so strong on the same day that the manufacturing indicator was horrible. Well, exactly. And let's look at the data. In the fourth quarter, on an unadjusted basis prior to seasonal adjustment, we had about 750,000 job openings fall in the fourth quarter. It's erratic month to month. On Friday, we would expect another strong employment report. Unfortunately, I think it's the last of the year. So, so let me back up. Are you, are you saying that the job market is, is as strong as the, the JOLTS report suggests, or no, you think it's losing momentum here? Labor demand in the year ahead is going to be a lot worse. You could take a look and say, well, mortgage application volumes are steadying. Well, they're down 38% right. from January a year ago. We have nothing but construction employment gains behind us. When we get into the spring, we're going to have very severe job losses in home construction. 
We had uh, home uh, inventories contribute the most to GDP last year since 2010. Marketing and sales positions are going to be lost. If the saying is, you know, too little, too late, in the case of the Fed, it's too much, too late. They're going to be tightening in a period when we right now are facing near-term contraction pressures in the economy. You know, Kathy, it sounds a little bit like what I, I think you're warning about as well, that you're seeing signs of a slowing consumer. The manufacturing slowdown is obviously more pronounced. That's right. Um, it, it, you know, real estate obviously is deeply in recession, but you're seeing that now uh, play out in manufacturing and even maybe the service side. You know, we'll get the ISM service um, report later this week, but that index dipped below 50. That was a real shocker. We, we thought the service side was holding up much better than that. Um, and, and consumer three of the last four months adjusted for inflation has contracted. So I guess this negative consumer spending momentum going into Q1 um, doesn't necessarily mean we get an outright decline in consumer spending, but we could. Um, and really, the last kind of bastion of strength is the labor market. Um, I would say when you dig through the jolts data, what was interesting, Kelly, is that hiring is actually continues to trend lower. So mm. even though the job openings number increased and openings to unemployment back towards 2%, Hiring, which you think about the churn, maybe that's what's happening. Companies are pulling back on the hiring, and, and that itself could depress uh, the net job creation, especially, you know, maybe not so much this Friday, I agree with Steve, but going forward should be much weaker. No, and I think we've had the same kind of thing show up in places like Indeed and ZipRecruiter, and so, you know, that, that, that hiring is down somewhat. But, but Kathy, are you basically saying it's just a matter of time until the labor market slows more? And if so, and if the Fed, I mean, the Fed has all of this data, too. So is this the kind of environment they want to be continuing to hike rates into? Well, that's a great question. So the, first off, I do think it's just a matter of time. You, you can't have the labor market remaining so strong when you have all these other sectors and weakening and the headwinds uh, affecting it. And, and companies are really preparing for recession and downturn. So that means they're going to pull back on hiring. Matter of time, if corporate profit growth continues to slow, they're actually going to have to lay off workers. In terms of the Fed, you know, I think generally this is what they're aiming for, not necessarily recession or slowdown, but they want to bring down inflation. And that means slowing down the labor market and, and um, aggregate demand consumer spending. Subhadra, do you think the message from markets here is basically that, I, I say rates, let's say tenure, you know, it, the peak is in, it's only down from here. Um, do you think there's any kind of rational case to be made for 350 being the lows of the year and somehow we go higher? Or, or could rates continue to keep falling, even as the Fed, if you think they're going to do three more, is raising things on the very, very short end of things? Yeah, I mean, I think the rates have already peaked for the cycle. Ten-year yields around four, four and a quarter percent. Late last year was the peak of the cycle. And our expectation is that yields would gradually decline during the course of, of this year. Um, that said, I was quite surprised how quickly we moved from four 20 to around 350, and we've stayed at that level uh, for the la for over the last uh, month or so. Um, I think the trajectory, broadly speaking, for the remainder of the year in 10 yields is to head lower 
And a lot of the Fed hikes and the, the, the pressure is going to be felt by the front end of the yield curve. And that's really where I feel like the market's underpricing the risk of, of hikes as it stands. I do see both Steve and Kathy's point of view. The data is mixed. That said, I think that the Fed is probably going to stay hawkish at this meeting, and the market's not fully appreciating the fact that the Fed is determined to get policy rates to the five to five and a quarter range by the end of this year. And under those circumstances, I think there's a potential perhaps for um, you know more repricing of, of hikes over the near term, uh, at least in the first half of the year. You know, one, one of the reasons, Subhadra, even as everyone's talking about, you know, soft landing and how strong things still are, the, the yield curves are, are pretty worrisome. And then when you start to see ISM doing what it's doing, you, you wonder if they're, if they're kind of ahead of the curve like they usually are. I mean, for the Fed to uninvert, we'd, they'd have to cut by at least a point here. I, can you just kind of from memory talk about whether and, and what their reaction function usually is like? I mean, normally these inversions happen a year, a year and a half, maybe more before the real pain of any kind of downturn hits. And I'm sure by that time, in at least the recent past, the Fed has already been cutting. So I can understand why people are extrapolating from these inversions to say they're going to be cutting by the end of the year. Typically, it's only nine months after the last rate hike. Is there any reason to think this time won't be the same? I think there is because of the fact that we have a very different environment uh, with inflation leading the way higher to to higher policy rates. This the period now is very similar to what we saw back in the 1960s or I mean 70s or 80s, where the curve was extraordinarily inverted and stayed inverted for a much longer period of time. So in our forecast for this year, we think that the curve. Um, continues to to disinvert, but then you know for the for the remainder of the year it it stays in negative territory. I.e., the the spread between the two year and the ten year remains uh, inverted, uh, even as we approach a uh, recession perhaps in early 2024. So I think the the dynamics this time are a little bit different, given the fact that a lot of the the repricing higher has been led by the front end and the Fed uh, pricing in uh, starting to deliver a bunch of hikes. Uh, so in this sort of context, it makes sense that the yield curve actually does remain inverted. So I'm less inclined to read too much into the inversion of the yield curve um, into, into an imminent recession. We still have a recession penciled in for early 2024. We see that uh, the trajectory towards uh, a, a, a recession is not imminent. Steve, what would you say about all that? Um, disagree. We have seen two months of declining industrial production, two months of declining consumer spending, two months of declines in real income. There are more and more signs accumulating that we're seeing an earlier reaction. Uh, again, this is going to be a period, if we look back, Paul Volcker was cutting rates after unemployment was rising, after they succeeded. We've had the first decline in broad money supply over the year through December since 1948. But you think this Fed is already in, in the position of Volcker kind of in the early 80s after he succeeded in, in defeating the inflation? Because they think they're the at the year, beginning of the, the fight. The Fed will lag. Again, you know, the yield curve is telling us the right message. Ultimately, the Fed will follow it. It will be the second half of this year. Uh, but unless we somehow miraculously have all these declines in sales without declines in jobs, the Federal Reserve will be cutting later in the year. Quick response to that, Subhadra. Um, it's possible. It really depends on the trajectory for the for the job market. Thus far, the job market's been extraordinarily resilient. Every data that point that we've gotten in, in, in jobs has been very, very strong. And I think as long as people remain employed, they're going to spend. So I think that 
you really need to see the the unemployment rate rise from 3.6, 3.7% now to around 4.5% by the end of the year. We just don't see that, uh, you know, the unemployment rate rising as rapidly uh, in, in the next several months. All right, Kathy, a quick final word from you as well. What are you going to be watching for specifically at 2 o'clock or at 2.30 today? Well, we're expecting a hawkish 25 basis point increase. So first thing is, let's look at the policy statement. Do they make any changes there? Is it still ongoing increases? Or do they change that adjective ongoing to something else, a few more increases? Um, and then the tone of uh, Chairman Powell's comments. Um, I don't think he's going to try to up the ante in terms of hawkishness, but hold the line. I don't think the markets will necessarily listen, but he'll keep maintain that. And, and I do agree that eventually the market sort of will have to catch up with that hawkishness. But And I also would add that even though we see a recession unfolding, I think the Fed also keeps raising rates to a bit above 5 percent because they're worried about inflation. You agree, Steve? I even think yeah, as, they'll probably as bearish go as you a, are. A, yeah. a couple more. And again, we don't think that this is going to be a real hard landing. Employment growth has been 1 percent since COVID started. Um, a lot of signs don't look like this has to be particularly severe, but I think that we will be surprised, the Fed will be surprised that unemployment's closer to five at the end of the year, and without a change in policy, it won't stop there. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you all for your time today. Kathy Busjancic, Steve Whiting, and Subhadra Rajapa. And don't miss Double Line CEO Jeff Gunlock on Closing Bell Overtime today. He'll react to the decision, reveal the moves he's making. That's at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, these rate hikes couldn't hit at a worse time for many consumers, with American household debt at a record high and rising. What the White House is now trying to do about it, and whether that'll have any impact on the growing number of delinquencies. But first, the busiest week of earnings season continues with big tech, big oil, and big pharma results on deck. The numbers and narratives you need to know in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. The low for the Dow was a drop of 384. We're about 60 points off that level right now. The Nasdaq remains the outperformer with only a quarter percent decline. 346 for the 10-year. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that... That's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back, everybody. Tons of earnings movers this week as the busiest season rolls on. In this earnings exchange, let's get the action, the story, and the trade on three more key names set to report. And we've got to start with Meta. They're after the bell today. Shares are down slightly into the print after that snap report. In fact, they've even turned positive by a third of 1%. And we're talking about a year where digital ad spending looks like it's going to hit a wall. They recently announced they're cutting 11,000 workers. Shares have dropped in three of the last four earnings reports. Julia Borson has the story today. And CNBC contributor Courtney Garcia, senior advisor at Payne Capital Management, is here with our trades. Welcome, guys. Julia, what are you watching? Well, there are a couple of the key things to watch, especially on the heels of Snap's warning about revenue declines in the first quarter. The key thing here first is revenue growth. What are we going to see here and what are we going to see in terms of brand advertising versus direct response advertising? One of the reasons why Snap did have the stock struggle so much today is because they are very exposed to brand advertising. Meta is better positioned. About 75% of their revenue comes from direct response advertising, so they may have a, a sort of more optimistic outlook about what's going on in the ad market. But the overall question is, have these macroeconomic pressures um, started to, to, to relax a little bit in, in terms of overall ad spending? Have things bottomed? The other thing we're really listening for, Kelly, is this question of whether or not they're really starting to make money from some of their features, such as messaging and also reels. Those are two um, um, opportunities for them to start to generate more revenue and eventually profits from those areas. And then the other question is cost cutting. They did already do layoffs, but will we hear more about where they're pulling back. Are they going to pull back further in this metaverse space? Because that is an area where they continue to spend big. All right. And Courtney, after a tough run, the stock is up nicely off the lows. What would you do with it here? Yeah, actually, I do have a hold on Meta. And you, you actually brought up pretty much every point I was going to bring up here. Um, some of the biggest things that they're facing are competition on ad revenue, right? I mean, advertisers are going to have to decide who they're advertising with or how much. And I do think that's going to weigh on Meta. They're also still facing regulatory scrutiny, both here in the U.S. and Europe. Their biggest thing is really they're spending a lot more on the metaverse than investors want to see. That very well could be a good long-term play for them. But I think shorter term, we need to see that they're focusing on some of the issues at hand. Um, but there are still some positive catalysts. Um, so we do want to see like how they're doing in reels, which you brought up. But one thing that really has nothing to do with how they're running the company is just the fact that the dollar has come down. So to put this in perspective, when earnings estimates were set in November, the dollar has come down since then. And by that amount, actually easily could add about a billion dollars to their top line just this quarter alone. So some of those things actually I think could be a positive and outweigh some of the issues. So I have a hold on them. I'm not actively buying it right now. I do want it for the long term. Um, so I just keep it. Yeah, and there we're looking at uh, Meta versus the dollar. It's a good point. Uh, looking forward to that later on. We'll leave it there. Julia, thanks. We'll turn to ConocoPhillips now, which is before the bell tomorrow. Those shares are down 4% today and basically flat over the past month after a monster run last year up 63%. Conoco, though, has fallen also on three of the last four earnings reports. Pippa Stevens has the story, Pippa. Hey, Kelly. Well, there are a couple of key things to watch here. First, of course, is their capital spending plans and their shareholder returns. On the CapEx front, Wall Street does expect it to be higher than last year, with about 10 percent of that from inflation and then production growth coming in at about 3 to 4 percent. Now, on the capital return front, uh, last year, Conoco uh, uh, targeted about 50 percent of cash from operations going back to investors, and they did implement a variable dividend. And, of course, the danger with that is that then investors can start to see that as the base dividend. And so that can be a little bit dangerous there. So we'll be listening for commentary around how they see the outlook, particularly with
with oil and gas prices coming down. Then we'll be watching for updates around key projects. They do have an interest in Sempra's LNG facility, Port Arthur facility, as well as some partnerships with Qatar Energy. And then finally, maybe most importantly, their Alaska project known as Willow. That is an $8 billion stake. And today, actually, the uh, environmental analysis from the Bureau of Land Management was made public, and they basically gave them the go-ahead and said it should be scaled down a little bit, but did give the green light so that now will go to the administration for final approval. And then final thing here is I think any commentary around M&A activity could be interesting. They were pretty active the last few years. They bought Contra Resources as well as Shell's assets in the Permian Basin. So with so much cash on hand, could they look to make some strategic acquisitions? Hmm. Variable dividend as well. Interesting. Courtney, do you like the energy names here? Do you like Conoco? I do. Yeah, I mean, energy in general, I think, continues to re- to look very attractive here. It significantly outperformed the S&P 500 last year. And I don't think you'll have that same magnitude of outperformance this year. But the overall supply demand constraints and energy have not been resolved. And now you add a China reopening on top of that, which just exacerbates it. And I do think ConocoPhillips is a really strong name in this space. Um, they just really, I think, are focusing on their growth and really brought down their balance sheet. And um, just looking at some of their numbers is actually very attractive. So they were actually able to cut their net debt to capital to about 13% recently, which is well above its peers. And their operating margins are over 30% right now, which is well above the roughly 20% range that it was at in 2019 and the negatives that it was in in 2020 and 2021. And I just think you're going to continue to see this look attractive, not to mention it pays a, a over 4, 4.3% dividend right now, which continues to make that look attractive. I think this is a play here. All right. It's still down 3%. I don't know. After Nat Gas, I'm a little sobered up uh, about some of the energy stocks, but but we'll see. Uh, it's early in the year. Let's turn. Thank you, Pippa, to uh, Merck now, which is also reporting before the bell tomorrow. It's also lower today, but it's about to snap a three-week losing streak. Meg Terrell, what's the story here? Well, Kelly, the story with Merck is always Keytruda. Of course, it's massive cancer drug, uh, both because of the growth that it brings, but also because of the fears of what happens when it starts to lose patent protection in about five years. Uh, in the near term, it is expected to continue to be a big growth driver for the company. Uh, so that will be closely watched, along with the vaccine Gardasil. That's expected to be another big driver. Um, also, analysts will be looking closely at the drug pipeline and progress there because of that issue with losing the exclusivity on Keytruda in 2028, uh, drugs for lung disease, cholesterol, cancer. And within that cancer category, of course, combinations with Keytruda, like for the personalized cancer vaccine, where we saw data with Moderna uh, in December. Finally, of course, how are they going to fill that revenue gap in five years through potentially business development and M&A? So what will they say around uh, that part of their business as well? Kelly? All right. Courtney, what do you do with Merck here? You like it? I do like this. And actually, of the names we're talking about, this is one of the only ones that's actually down so far this year. So it is underperforming the markets, but does lead to some opportunities. And, you know, just to kind of echo your point here, Keytruda is really like their big driver right now, which we are still five years away from them losing exclusivity. So, yes, we're going to want to see what they say there, but it's going to continue to be a profit driver for them. What I really like that they've done is they've actually spun off a lot of their lower growth initiatives. And so now they're focused on just their higher profit margins. And just to put that in perspective, they're actually expecting that that can actually increase operate efficiency 
by about one and a half billion dollars through next year. Um, so we just need to see more things like that to um, help the fact that they're going to eventually lose exclusivity with these drugs. But I think in the near term, it's going to continue to be a good play. Yeah, it's always about the pipelines, uh, isn't it? Guys, thank you. We really appreciate it today. Courtney Garcia with our trades. Meg, thank you as well, our Meg Terrell. Still ahead, a number of home builders hitting new 52-week highs today, but demand is still down despite falling rates. We're going to look at some of the headwinds for the housing market. Speaking of which, in terms of headwinds, it's clear skies for business travelers across most of the country today. But winter weather in Texas continues to wreak havoc at airports, with carriers canceling nearly 2,500 flights in Dallas since Monday. In fact, more than half of today's 2,000-plus cancellations across the country are in Texas. And as we head to break, let's take a look at the Dow heat map with Amgen, Travelers, and Chevron, your worst performers today. Only four names are in the green right now, led by Boeing, Salesforce up marginally as well, Intel, J&J. The rest of us are red. We'll see you after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's your pre-Fed setup. We see the Dow pretty heavy today, down 319. But over here with the NASDAQ, only down 18 points. Remember, this has been the best performer in January, the best performer basically since rates peaked just a couple of months back, continuing to try to lead the way, although still under pressure. Let's get over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty? All right, Kelly, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. The FBI search of President Biden's Delaware Beach House has concluded, and no classified documents were found. This, according to a lawyer for President Biden, agents did take some handwritten notes and other materials for review. The search, which was planned, done with the president's cooperation, took about three and a half hours. It's in Rehoboth, Delaware. More mass strikes in Europe, this time in the UK. Teachers, civil servants, train drivers are among those demanding higher pay. The teachers' unions say up to a half million workers expected to take part. School day holiday for many kids there. Uh, that would make it Britain's largest strike in more than a decade as months of strikes over wages and working conditions intensify in Great Britain. And attorneys general from 20 conservative states are warning CVS and Walgreens about selling abortion pills by mail. They say they will take legal action against sales that they say would violate both federal and state laws and that an FDA rule allowing abortion pills to be delivered by mail is illegal. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thank you very much. Still ahead, credit card rates are at record highs. Bank rate sees them going even higher thanks to today's hike. We'll dig into the state of consumer balance sheets. And President Biden is set to meet with his competition council in just a few minutes to address credit card fees. The headlines and what it could mean for your wallet next.
Welcome back. The White House could soon reshape its economic team, and this has implications for the Fed. They're looking to strengthen the consumer in the second half of President Biden's term. Today, the Competition Council meeting to discuss a proposal to cap late penalties on credit cards. Let's get to Kayla Tausche with all the latest. Kayla? Kelly, we've learned the White House will likely tap Fed Vice Chair Lael Brainerd to run the National Economic Council and Jared Bernstein, a current CEA member, to lead the Council of Economic Advisors, according to sources familiar with the matter. Two critical roles shaping economic policy, the latter of which will require Senate confirmation. The decision, which sources caution are not yet final, could be announced as soon as next week when Jeff Zients assumes the chief of staff role that governs these appointments. Politico first reported the news of the two appointments being near the finish line. Sources say the departure of Brian Deese is imminent. On a call yesterday this uh, yesterday evening to preview today's meeting of the Competition Council, which Deese has led for nearly two years, officials thanked him for his service. Today, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is moving to cap credit card late fees at $8 from as high as $41 previously. They're requesting comments from the industry, but already it's hitting back. The Consumer Banking Association saying these fees by highly regulated banks are clearly disclosed. They say the policy is deeply unfortunate and puzzling. Kelly? That's a big deal, Kayla. Some, I think, had asked uh, that Brainerd, you know, maybe not be moved because they, they liked her position at the Fed. But it, real quickly, it sounds like the president didn't budge. It's moving in that direction. Earlier this week, I asked Roger Ferguson, who once was Fed vice chair himself, what he thought of the move, whether there were any conflicts associated with today's vote on monetary policy. He said that he hopes that she'll stay at the Fed because she's a superior leader there. Right, Kelly? right. Kayla, we appreciate it. Our Kayla Tausche. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to our next guest now, who's focused on today's rate hike, saying they'll push credit card rates north of 20 percent right as savings dry up and Americans are adding on debt. How much trouble could that mean ahead? Joining us now is Greg McBride, chief financial analyst at bankrate.com. And Greg, it's no coincidence we're now seeing the White House get involved here. Uh, but what does this boil down to in terms of the, the load consumers are facing? Well, credit card balances are rising at exactly the wrong time. You know, we're seeing credit card balances rise at a time when credit card rates are at a record high and they're going to increase further. Credit card rates tend to move in lockstep with the Fed. So a quarter point rate hike from the Fed today means your credit card statement's going to go up uh, a quarter. That rate will go up a quarter percentage point, probably one or two statement cycles down the road. Sure. And if we look at, you know, your mortgage is usually fixed, your auto payment is usually fixed. So this is the one area where rate hikes hit pretty much immediately. It does. It hits very, very quickly. Uh, And it's this variable rate debt, credit cards, home equity lines of credit that are really, you know, the, the Achilles heel right now in terms of your exposure to these rising rates. We've seen rates go up what will now be a grand total of four and a half percentage points in less than a year, and the Fed probably isn't done yet. So, you know, the cumulative effect is really having an impact on consumer spending and overall financial health. And at the same time, right as people can finally get a return on their savings, by many accounts, it sounds like those savings are start to, starting to run out. What are the options here? I mean, buy now, pay later, that's under its own scrutiny in terms of, I'm sure it's going to be a regulatory scrutiny as well. If the White House is trying to cap fees, that's fine, but people might ultimately exit that space. Where do you think a stretched consumer is likely to turn? Well, I mean, that's a real question because, you know, a lot of times what we've seen in the past is that credit ends up tightening the more when the tighter the rules that are put into effect. And so, it, you know, ends up leaving particularly lower and very moderate income households in the position where, you know, they're going to things like payday lenders or, you know, the, the, the rise of buy now, pay later, you know, has, has you know, it, that's certainly been popular even among high income households. 
Uh, but you know, you're going to have people that are looking for alternatives that they can't get credit in the traditional way. How else should we be watching for today's expected rate hike to ripple through? And, and again, the fact that we've had four points worth of hikes, really, in a very short period of time. I imagine that things like home and auto are areas where we'll, we'll continue to see people feel the hit. Exactly. So a lot of those are fixed rate loans. But if the cumulative effect of all these rate hikes ends up bringing the economy uh, into a downturn or into a recession and unemployment goes up, then you're going to see delinquencies and defaults really start to increase. So maybe not a direct correlation there, but there is definitely a knock-on effect. What, what does this all tell you about where we are in the quote-unquote cycle? Uh, well, I mean, it's, you know, unfortunately, we had seen households build up savings and pay down credit card debt in the early stages of the pandemic, and we've seen it reverse now. Uh, the households are increasingly running down those savings balances and running those credit card debts back up again. And again, that's happening at the worst time, right? You're finally getting paid on your savings, and credit card rates are at a record high, yet savings are declining credit card balances on the rise. Yeah, so above 20%, we could be headed for uh, for some of these rates on average today on, on credit card debt. Greg, uh, we appreciate you highlighting that for us. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Kelly. Greg McBride with Bankrate.com. Coming up, Kathy Wood's vote of confidence, not enough to keep the gains going for this name today. We'll reveal the stock and why she's staying bullish next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get to some show and tell where we show you a chart, tell the story. We're talking about shares of Tesla. That was our mystery chart tease, up 41% so far this year to finish out its best month in more than a year. Shares of Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF are up almost 30%, by the way, closing out its best month ever. Granted, they're down way high, way from the highs. Now, the largest position in RK with a nearly 10% weighting, that's where it's capped, is Tesla. So this has been a longstanding uh, position of strength, relatively weakness, and here a position of strength again today. Uh, Kathy telling Squawk Box earlier today she still believes in Tesla's future as a tech company. Listen. Its gross margins are going up. Uh, and it's a, a technology company from the point of view of battery technology. It is uh, at the leading edge there. Um, artificial intelligence, as you said, Andrew. Uh, and I think the, one of the most important things, you ask who the winners are going to be, they're going to be those companies with proprietary data. And there you have it. Now, meanwhile, home builder stocks touching new 52-week highs today. But falling mortgage rates aren't doing much to help the housing market. We're going to have all the latest numbers and a look at why many buyers just aren't fighting. That's next. Welcome back. Mortgage rates have been dropping over the past month, but it hasn't yet translated into an uptick in home buying. Diana Olick is here to break it all down. Diana? Well, Kelly, mortgage rates continued to fall last week, but after several weeks of big gains, mortgage demand dropped off really pretty sharply. So the average rate on the 30-year fixed, according to Mortgage Bankers Association, dropped to 6.19%, just a little bit from 6.20. Now, it started this year, though, at 6.58%. About a year ago, it was half that. Even with rates well off their recent highs, applications to refinance a home loan fell 7% for the week and were 80% lower than the same week a year ago. Mortgage applications to buy a home fell a wider 10% for the week and were down 41% year over year. 
While both home prices and mortgage rates are coming down steadily, housing is still historically pricey, and the supply of homes for sale is still quite low, and that may also be keeping mortgage demand under pressure. Now, the MBA noted they were surprised by the drop as much as I was, citing volatility in the market right now as well as strong demand coming off the holidays. They said this drop this week could just be, quote, a blip. And we'll see, Diana, stay right there. Let's also bring in Andy Walden of Black Knight to discuss the potential impact of today's Fed decision on the housing market. Andy, welcome to you. Um, what? It's ironic, if they keep hiking and the market thinks that's going to send us into a slowdown, the 10-year will keep dropping, which could stimulate the, the home buying portion of the market, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, and I mean, that's that's typically what you've seen in past cycles, right? The 10-year, the 30-year fixed rate try to get out in front of Fed movements, and we've seen that happen throughout 2022. Same way on the rate down, right? You'd expect that with the Fed expected to plateau rates this year, that 30-year rates would re remain relatively high. Not necessarily what we've seen over the last four Fed tightening cycles. And so there is some expectation that rates could ease here, despite the Fed uh, expecting to hold rates higher throughout 2023. And how much is that, Diana, so far contributing towards any increase in buying demand? I mean, are, are people that rate sensitive or is affordability so stretched that this doesn't yet make a dent? Well, I think it is helping a little bit. Look, we saw pending home sales last week, which was for the December report that signed contracts. They went up unexpectedly. And also the last two builder reports that we got this week from Pulte and last week from DR Horton also showed unexpected new demand coming in December. And that's when rates fell back the most from their highs in October. So I do think that there are some people who were on the fence, saw rates come down a bit and said, OK, let me get in when the market's not that competitive. And again, we're seeing prices come down really sharply. And I, I'm wondering from Andy if he expects to see prices fall much further. We're already down 6% from June, according to Case Schiller, and they're falling much more sharply than they did during the Great Recession. Andy? Yeah, and I, I think you will, right? If you look at, we just released our latest Black Knight home price index last week. It showed the sixth consecutive month-over-month -month decline in home prices. If you look at home affordability, it's absolutely improved from where it was in October or November. You're still looking at home affordability that's worse than it was at the peak of the market in 2006. And that's going to continue to put downward pressure on prices. If you look at that annual home price growth rate, it's down to 5% as of December. But if you look at the trajectory, it's, it's set to cross over that 0% threshold by March and April of this year. Wow. Right now, those monthly numbers are telling us negative 5%-ish is kind of where that annual rate would move if we continue to see the behavior that we have been. So I would expect the market to continue to correct. I think we're, from a transactional perspective, we are seeing buyers start to come out from their winter hibernation. It is a stronger January so far all in, despite the jumps and drops on a weekly basis. So transactions reaching their floor, the price is uh, still still softening as we move into 2020. Andy, maybe then you can riddle me why we're seeing the home building stocks at multi-year highs at a time when you're talking about price uh, prices going through, you know, back to zero in terms of increases. It's bizarre. Yeah, it almost feels like you're, you're seeing the upslope, right? So if you look at it, demand or, or purchase locks or sale volumes, according to our, our data in December, uh, they were roughly 30% below pre-pandemic levels. They are starting to swing a little bit as we get into early January. So maybe trying to call the dip on, on some of those stocks out there in the market, call the floor on some of that transactional volume activity. And, and when you look at the purchase market, it is expected to gradually rise as we move throughout 2023, despite the really challenging Q1 that we're looking at here. Real quickly, Diana, none of these, look, more people are taking out arms than usual because of uh, high rates, ironically, but these are usually, what, seven-year resets. It wouldn't affect that many people right now. 
Yeah, we're still a very low volume of arms, below 10 percent, which is nothing compared to what we saw during the last housing boom. People are still being very conservative and mostly going for the 30-year fix. They are, however, taking out more home equity lines, hmm. which could mean that that's, that's a sign that the economy is pushing them to get money where they can, and that's in their house. Right, and that would reset uh, higher with this move, potentially. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both, Diana Olick and Andy Walden. And we're less than 10 minutes out from the Fed rate decision. Dow's down 324 as we await that Power Lunch will be all over the big event. I'll join Tyler Matheson, who is getting ready for this big show right after this quick break. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.